So it might be a direct effect on on running economy or exercise efficiency, or it might be an effect on blood flow, or it might be an effect on muscle contractile function, whatever it is, or some combination of the of the above, um, seems to impact on their performance. That triathlon show, one hundred eighty-seven. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Professor Andy Jones from the University of Exeter. He's a professor of applied physiology at the Department of Sport and Health Sciences and is internationally recognized for his work in a wide range of fields, most of which are related to endurance sports science. He has authored more than 280 original research and review papers, and he's the co-editor of three different books. So in this interview, we will discuss various aspects of performance physiology and endurance sports science. We discuss the Breaking 2 project, as well as Andrew's work with Paula Radcliffe back in the day, when she set the marathon world record that is still standing. And uh, we discuss, of course, what he's most well known for, I think, at least recently, which is nitrate and beetroot, beetroot juice and the effect that that has on endurance performance. But before we get into that, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. And uh, I've actually scheduled with founder Andy Blow to set up a Q&A episode interview, so we'll take a lot of hydration questions and answer them on a Q&A, like I do the first Q&As, but this one will be with an expert on the topic of hydration and we'll choose hydration questions that come in. We will be recording that early July, so please send in any questions that you may have related to hydration on michael at scientifictriathlon.com or you can probably send them to Precision Hydration on their website or on Twitter. And uh, But yeah, michael at scientifictriathlon.com is easy. I'll Put them in the in the backlog and we'll do that episode and release it at some point later on, late July, early August. So I'm very much looking forward to that. In the meantime, if you want to find out more about your individual sweat rate and sweat sodium content, go to precisionhydration.com and take their free online sweat test and use the promo code DATTRAFLONSHOW, all on word, all caps, to get your first box or tube of pH electrolyte product for free. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. They're the world leaders in wetsuits, trisuits, swim and triathlon apparel, and high-performance eyewear. And if you haven't already, go and check out that eyewear range because it's uh, absolutely brilliant. Even somebody like myself who cares nothing at all about fashion or anything like that, I sort of get a confidence boost when I put on my Roka casual streetwear shades because I just think that they are so fashionable and look so, so, so cool. And uh, yeah, they have a lot of great casual eyewear as well as the high-performance sports sunglasses, all with patented technology, lots of patents actually, no slip technology among other things, so they won't slip off your face. It is literally impossible the optics are, of course, superb. They also have prescription glasses now. So there's something for any need in the glasses and sunglasses department. So check them out on roca.com and uh, you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. 
All right, so let's get into today's interview with Professor Andy Jones. So, Andy, welcome to That Triathlon Show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Can you give us a little bit of a background of yourself for those listeners that might not be familiar with your work in the endurance space? Yeah, sure. I'm um, I'm currently a professor of applied physiology at the University of Exeter in the UK. Um, I guess my whole uh, career has been, you know, about endurance exercise of one form or another, particularly distance running. So I got into sports science in the first place because I was a pretty decent um, junior runner in the UK, and then um, you know, since then I've kind of been obsessed by by endurance exercise and the limitations to endurance exercise and some of the things that we might be able to do to improve endurance exercise. So a lot of the research that I've done has focused on the limitations to exercise performance. And of course, some of the applied work that I do with athletes, runners in particular, has um, has focused on trying to help them uh, achieve their goals. Yeah, uh, we'll get into all of those different aspects and, and a lot of the different things that you've, you've researched in the, in the academic uh, space as well, as well as the practical applications. I think the first mention that we had on you on the podcast was when I interviewed Alex Hutchinson about his book Endure, and he talked about how you were able to very accurately predict Paula Radcliffe's marathon, marathon performances based on the testing that you did with her in the lab, measuring things like her, her VO2 max and, and running economy. Uh, so uh, I guess uh, the question about that that I have, and, and you have done research on this as well, so applied and academic work, uh, what are a handful of key points that you can advise the listeners to do uh, to improve these physiological variables based on this academic research and practical experience that you have? Yeah, so, so um, I mean, just to tell the, re- the listeners, um, you know, the, the variables that are important for success in endurance generally but running uh, specifically you know when we, when we evaluate runners in the in the lab we we measure their maximal oxygen uptake or vo2 max their running economy as you mentioned but also their their sustainable fraction of their vo2 max which is typically related to you know the lactate threshold in in whatever way you want to define that and those three things if together I can with the lactate um, threshold would you be yeah. more interested in either one of uh, the first or the second ventilatory thresholds or would both be equally important? Well, they're, they're both important for different reasons. It depends on the type of uh, event that the athlete is training for, but both are actually very useful when it comes to training prescription. So that might be something we could chat about later. But, you know, all of those three things are of value and to track how they change over time, over the course of an athlete's career and when they introduce different types of training is um is pretty interesting so if you have those those variables um measured accurately then you can certainly with some with some insight and knowing some of the background science um make some predictions about what the athlete might be capable of a variety of different distances when it comes to what it is they ought to do to improve each of those three things separately then in fact there aren't any clear-cut studies to really guide us on that so we we have to use some of our uh, some of our experiences and so it's quite surprising in some respects that those three key variables of endurance performance while everybody recognizes them as being um, really important the precise training activities that you might need to do to develop each one of those things independently is not so well known you would imagine though that you know vo2 max is essentially related to 
um, maximal oxygen uptake. Well, well, it is maximal oxygen uptake, but it's um, it's the delivery of oxygen to the muscle that seems to be the limiting factor. And in particular, what's your maximal cardiac output? So logically, it would seem appropriate that to improve VO2 max that we do a few sessions per week or at least one session per week where we get close to our maximal cardiac output or close to maximal heart rate. So whatever type of interval session, for example, will take you to your maximal, close to your maximal heart rate and keep you there for a few minutes over the course of the session is probably going to be, um, you know, relevant for developing that particular parameter. So, you know, that might be something like 16 times 400 meters. It might be something like five times 1000 meters. There's a variety of different uh, types of interval type training session that would get you uh, that same sort of result. When it comes to running economy, you know, there are both biomechanical and physiological factors that influence that. Um, One of the things that does seem clear is that the individuals who are the most economical are those that have been training for quite some time. You know, we find that age and experience do seem to be correlated with running economy. So one of the things that I reported with Paula Radcliffe, for example, was that her running economy kept improving over about 15 years of her career. And that was the one variable that seemed to really closely correlate with her improved performance over that period of time. So, you know, actually just being consistent, running reasonable mileage over you know many months and many years is probably the way forward there, because ultimately, I think your body adapts its biomechanics and its physiology to minimize Um, the fatigue and the energy costs so you find ways to move more efficiently essentially and then finally you've got uh, you know basically the lactate speed curve and and what you want to have happen over the course of a training program is for that to be sort of suppressed and and moved sort of downwards and to the right and um, lower lactate for for the same speed uh, yeah yeah so you basically shift those lactate thresholds whether it's the first or the second one to a higher speed um how you go about that, I mean, again, there seem to be a variety of ways of doing it. Doing a reasonably high volume of aerobic training may be one, one way because if you can increase your volume of mitochondria and, and you know, efficiently use fats and so on, then the accumulation of lactate will be, uh, will be reduced. But similarly, doing tempo or threshold-type sessions where you deliberately run for extended periods with lactate elevated seems to stimulate the ability to clear that lactate as well so so a combination of things is is essential i think so you you need to be doing the longer slower work you need to be doing the interval work but personally i think it's important not to neglect that uh, that tempo pace in the middle which is probably where you're going to do most of your racing Mm, yeah, and uh, this question, by the way, I've uh, for the listeners, uh, uh, I've uh, noted my questions here under different categories, and we're starting off with some, I guess, performance physiologies is, is what I noted as the headline for this set of questions, and and the next uh, topic that I want to get into with you that you've done work in is uh, warm ups. How important are they, and and why are they important for racing in particular, but also training if you want to go into that. Yeah, well, it's it's um, it's interesting being on a triathlon podcast because actually, when it comes to warming up for very long duration endurance exercise, then it's probably less important. You have to be careful that you don't do you know too much in advance, and especially if the conditions are warm, you don't want to overheat. So most of the work that I've done on on warm up focuses more on middle distance endurance events um, 800 meters 1500 meters possibly as far as 3k or 5k but probably not beyond that and 
the work there was really related to um, oxygen uptake kinetics, which has been a major theme of my research over many years. And the idea there is that in addition to, you know, VO2 max, submaximal VO2, VO2 at which the lactate threshold occurs, there's a, there's a fourth variable, which is how rapidly can your oxygen uptake rise to meet the steady state requirement after the gun fires at the beginning of the race. Now, if you're an 800 or a 1500 meter runner, that period of time, that first 45 to 60 seconds is a major fraction of the entire race duration. So if we can find a way to actually accelerate the rise in oxygen uptake to the steady state, then that ought to uh, optimize performance. Uh, we're assuming there, of course, that the amount of anaerobic energy that you have available is basically a constant, is fixed. And therefore, if we can generate more energy aerobically in that first phase by having faster VO2 kinetics, then that ought to be beneficial. So we use the... Um, you know, the experience that I've had and many others have had, which is that when you run a set of intervals on the track, the the second one often feels much easier, uh, even it, it, it may be slightly faster, it might be the same speed, but very often it feels easier than the first one, which doesn't make a lot of inherent sense because in that second rep, you ought to be carrying some fatigue forward from the first rep that you've done. So let's say you're doing again, an example of 12 times 400 meters, the first one often feels much harder than the second, third and fourth ones. And the reason appears to be that um, you're, you're primed essentially for that second and subsequent uh, reps. So we find that if you do a prior bout of high intensity exercise, then if we look at how rapidly your oxygen uptake rises at the start of the second repetition, then it is, is much faster. And that's as a consequence of greater vasodilation. So you're delivering more oxygen to your muscles, but also the, the respiratory enzymes in the mitochondria within those muscles are better able, they're, they're primed and ready to utilize the oxygen that's available to them. So we uh, you know, did a few studies which indicated that uh, that was the case and then started to apply it back to athletes. And you know, most of them have adapted their warm-ups accordingly. That in, in running, if you're a track runner, the standard warm-up is to do a couple of miles of easy running, a bit of stretching, and then, then a few strides, you know, maybe 80-meter strides repeated four times, and then then they're on the start line. And, and there's this there's been this inherent fear that you don't want to do anything more than that in case um, you, you start the race with, God forbid, lactate in your legs or um, feeling a bit uh, um, tired before the race starts. But if you take into account the experience that I've just described in training, where that second rep is usually better than the than the first rep, then actually introducing a much longer, fairly hard repetition prior to the race itself, as long as it's sufficiently far away from the start of the race, and we're talking 10 to 20 minutes, seems to be beneficial. So, so we encourage some runners to adapt their warm-ups to include a 200 to 400 meter close to all-out effort 10 to 20 minutes before the start of the race. And we were able to verify that, in fact, performance over 800 meters was, was improved. But lots of athletes that, that tried that, you know, in a trial and error basis did, um, did find that it was beneficial and have continued to use it. Yeah, and I think for, for some triathletes and, and certain events, this uh, is directly applicable because of the fact that the swim can be very important, especially at least if you are pretty competitive and you want to get into a good position in the swim, but then out of the swim into the first transition, reaching that first buoy in 
in a, in a fast swimming pack is uh, is all important. So that uh, that race to the first buoy, the first two or three hundred meters, is uh, typically an all out effort, even if it's a fifteen hundred meter swim as part of a an almost two hour Olympic triathlon. So so that is something if you want to be in that first pack, and and you want to reach that buoy before it gets all congested and you will be stood up around that buoy then then having a real proper swim warm-up which includes something like that would probably be beneficial of course for people that are more i guess uh going for com- com- competing no completing rather than competing it, it might not make as much sense especially as the distances get longer as you say but but there are different situations in a triathlon as well and the good thing i guess is that we don't need to worry too much about overheating because the swim will cool us down and the overheating starts later on so so i think i think that a lot of these things can be applicable for triathlon just as well as distance running or mid-distance running yeah that's right that's very interesting i hadn't uh, actually considered that yeah but certainly if you're if you're an elite athlete and um getting into the appropriate position is an important uh, factor then uh, then tactically it would, it would sound like it could be an astute move yeah i do know that uh, a lot of the elite triathletes uh, they typically race sprint and olympic races in the afternoon and they would go out and do a, a pretty hard run in the morning and, and then they might do some openers on the bike in later in the morning and then before the race they will they will swim and they will they will include something that is pretty hard okay. of course to to prepare for for that fast and furious start of the race but even at, at the age group level i would certainly include hard efforts in my swim warm-up even for half distance races with a 1900 meter meter swim hmm. um oh that's interesting i mean there is one one distance running event that's uh that's relevant for the same reason though and that's um something like the world cross-country championships which although it's you know often i think seven and a half miles um, where you would think that having fast VO2 kinetics in the first couple of minutes isn't going to be that relevant. Again, the same thing is true that it's a sprint finish in that type of activity, and it's really a case of hanging on as long as you can. And if you're not in a reasonable position in the first half a mile, then you're probably not going to come through and win. So, again, being being primed to to get off the line quickly and, and establish a good race position is, is going to be important in that. Yeah, and the same applies for many cycling cycling events, mountain biking, yeah. and uh, we have a lot of cy- cyclists that are listening to this uh, podcast as well. So, and and runners for that matter. So, not just multi sport athletes. Uh, let's discuss pacing. That's uh, another thing that you've uh, worked quite a lot about. So, can you explain what what you've done in in that realm? Yeah. Um, well, pa- yeah, pacing. I think what we've what we've been interested in there is whether uh, fast start pacing strategies can sometimes be be beneficial. And, of course, the pacing strategy that is uh, optimal will depend upon the race distance and duration. So for, for the marathon, then it appears that actually pretty even paced is best, although, interestingly, both Paula Radcliffe and Elliot Kipchoge ran negative splits when they ran their respective world records. So, in other words, the second half was a bit faster than the, than the first. But for again, for shorter events, we explored the possibility that starting, you know, in the first 10 seconds or so, pretty much all out might enable a faster VO2 response. And the rationale there is that when you start off at a very high intensity, the the phosphocreatine in your muscle splits really quickly and it, it drives drives down. If you slow subsequently, you can replenish some of that. But the fall in PCR is directly proportional to the rise in VO2. So you might be able to kind of kickstart the aerobic system and accelerate it towards where it needs to be without 
um, sort of incurring too much of a of an oxygen deficit. That you know, there's a balance to be struck between going too hard and too fast too soon, and um, depleting your anaerobic energy store too much, incurring too great an oxygen deficit, and doing enough of that to to sort of um, stimulate oxygen uptake to rise more rapidly. So we we played about with that to some extent, and it does appear that. In some circumstances, at least when the exercise duration is less than two to four minutes, then starting fast is probably a beneficial strategy. Mm. Uh, did you do any direct uh, performance uh, studies where you looked at uh, some mid-distance runners, for example, and uh, uh, what sort of uh, difference in performance could you see? Um, we didn't do that with runners. I think we did those studies on on a cycle ergometer. Our first ones were simply looking at um, how long can a person, having having manipulated the starting power and then getting them back to the same mean power, how long could they go for? So the idea there is that if there was some sort of physiological benefit in that first period, that should translate into increased endurance capacity measured by improved time to exhaustion. And we were certainly identifying that that were true. We did go on to do some studies which looked at, um, you know, a fixed uh, period of work for a certain duration and then then a sprint again to, to establish whether the fast start strategy had indeed spared some of the the anaerobic capacity which was then available in that lattice in the, the last phase and there was decent evidence that that was true there as well i mean to be honest it's been a while since i did those pacing studies so i'm i'm trying to remember the detail of them but i think that's the gist of it with this just thinking a bit not necessarily outside the box, but uh, about potential uh, takeaways from this. Could this mean that you could, if you are in the cross-country world championships or you are in a, an elite triathlon race and want to uh, go in that first group to to the first buoy and, and reach that quickly, you shouldn't be afraid of going out the first 10, 15 seconds at a, an absolute, basically all-out sprint because you are not doing any more damage to your anaerobic uh, reserves compared to if you're going at a 95% speed because you're using that phosphocreatine and potentially just getting the added benefit of of a more rapid vo2 response is is that something that could be a conclusion or is it uh, a bit too much speculation no i think that's actually probably quite quite reasonable if you started really fast for the first 10 or 15 seconds and then settled into a steadier pace that would probably be more beneficial and certainly less harmful than if you went all out for a minute and then tried to settle in for the pace. So, you know, that first 10 to 15 seconds is predominantly about the phosphocreatine system. Um, you go much longer than that and you start to uh, to use anaerobic glycolysis to a, gr- to a greater extent, and that might be more difficult to recover from. Yeah, and that's for the listeners, again, because that that's where you're actually going to use a lot of carbohydrates and uh, that is a limited, uh, limited supply that you have. Uh, yeah. All right, let's uh, move into Breaking 2, which you were involved with in the Breaking 2 project uh, with uh, Nike and uh, and the runners that uh, were uh, were trying to, to break the two-hour. And it almost happened, not quite, but what's your take? Do you think that it will happen soon? And what further improvements do you think that will and can be made compared to the previous attempt to make it happen? Yeah, I'm a believer. I think it uh, it will eventually happen. Um, for, for sure, you know, we're getting progressively closer. I think breaking two certainly contributed a large part to, um, to, you know, to expediting that eventuality occurring as well. So, you know, when Kipchoge took more than two and a half minutes off the existing world record, that was a major 
sort of stepping stone. And I don't think you'd have run 201.39 in Berlin had he, had he not already run 200.25 in Monza the year before. So <clears throat> I, I do think it'll happen. I think we're getting, we're getting closer. Um, you know, I think, I hope it can be Kipchoge, uh, but he's not going to have too many more opportunities probably. So we might, I hope it's him. If it isn't, then we, I don't know how long we'd have to wait for somebody like Kipchoge to come along. He's an absolutely incredible and special um, person, an athlete. Um, and it's hard to think that there could be somebody better than him, but there always are, aren't there? You know, we've seen over the history of, of athletics, whether it's in the 100 metres or the mile or the marathon, somebody eventually comes along and, and can do even better than, the, than, than the, the heroes of today. So, yes, I, I, I do think it'll happen. How quickly it will happen is a, is a tougher question. I think it could happen relatively soon could happen within five years but it could take 15 or 20 years i don't see it taking much longer than that because i think um you know kipchoge's taken it within sight now when it was when the world record was 203 or 202 that's the sort of time that people aim at but they know now that it is possible to go faster and they'll be dreaming that they could be the you know the roger bannister of the marathon so so it'll happen and i would say within within 15 to 20 years at worst uh, in terms of what can be done better, um, I think the Monza experience was great. You know, a lot of thought went into that event. Um, lots of state-of-the-art preparations. You know, Kipchoge was in great shape. Most of what we did there, I think, was uh, was great. There's, there isn't much that I think could be changed. <clears throat> um, it was a little bit warmer than perhaps was ideal. You know, I think a lot of homework went into finding a, a great track, and Monza was certainly that. It had the sweeping bends. It had a beautiful road surface. The It was a still day. The conditions weren't at all bad. It was about 10 to 12 degrees C, but there's an argument that if the course or the, the environment had been a little bit cooler, maybe 8 to 10 degrees C, that could have been more beneficial. And you have to think as well about things like the time of day at which the race uh, could be run. Most endurance events are, are running the evenings or most um, world record performances are running the evenings. The marathon's a bit of an exception because I guess, uh, you know, it's almost always run in the morning for logistical reasons. Certainly big city marathons are. And I think Monza was run in the morning because that gave us the, the best environmental conditions. But if you could find a course that was equally fast but was cool in the evening such that as the race proceeded, the environment got cooler. So the gradient from the core of the runner to the environment became steeper rather than more narrow, which is what happens in the morning. Then then that might be something that would be of benefit as well. So so there's a couple of sort of thermoregulatory things there. Um, it, you know, we mentioned pacing already. The In Monza, the idea was to go through halfway slightly faster than um, two-hour pace. So I think it was something like 59.50 at halfway. And the idea is that certainly psychologically, it's nice to be just slightly ahead of the game and know that you've got a few seconds in hand. And certainly for the spectators, it's nice to think that actually this is still on. Um, but on reflection, again, looking at what Kipchoge did in Berlin, where he accelerated over the, over the second half and over the, the fourth quarter, then arguably, you know, if you could hold your nerve and go through in 60-10 or 60-20, maybe that gives you an even better chance of breaking two. So there's that kind of thing. We, we took the 
the mile by mile pacing out of the hands or the, or the legs of the runner in breaking two as well. So there was the lead car that showed exactly you know where the runner needed to be to break two, and everybody ran to that pace. So there was no opportunity for pace to fluctuate. So there might have been occasions where Elliot felt really good and would have preferred to go a bit quicker, and there might have been occasions when he didn't feel so good and would have preferred to go a bit slower. And actually, by going a little bit quicker and a little bit slower, you change your motor unit recruitment patterns and you know, you use your muscle fibers in slightly different ways and and that might minimize fatigue to some extent. So so while even pace has a lot to be said for it, some of those stochastic fluctuations that we see when runners run might be there for a very good reason. So, you know, that's another thing to consider. And then finally, sociologically, the thing about Monza was that while there was a lot of support in the home straight, it was pretty barren in the back straight and there was not a lot of uh, encouragement. And, and I think all of the athletes found it quite quite tough running that course around the the back half there so so whether if you could you know motivate uh, the athletes and cheer them on the entire way around you know there are some of these psychological issues that uh, that could be improved upon possibly also mm, very interesting I, I was looking the other day at the the history of the marathon world records in preparation for this interview and and it's very interesting to see how as you say the the men's record has been falling and getting ever closer to that two hour mark but on the women's side uh, we haven't seen a new world record since uh, well we have seen technically it depends on how you define it in a women's only marathon versus one where me- men are also running but polar radcliffe is still the fastest uh, time over the marathon distance that was running a race with uh, men as well which is why we have two world records i guess if you look at it that way yeah. but that was 15 or almost 15 to 20 years ago so so what what do you think has happened on the men's side and why aren't we seeing those same changes or improvements on the women's side in the world record was paula just so much ahead of her time and uh, so unique or do you have any theories on yeah, that? I, I don't really it's it is uh it is fascinating. There's just been a lot more kind of competition on the men's side, hasn't there? They've been athlete after athlete kind of pushing things further. If you look at the, um, the as you say, the graph, there's that kind of dog leg where over the last five to ten years or so, the men's the men's record has really um, plummeted, and, and the women's is, has not. And I, I'm not really really sure where that was. I mean, Paula certainly was extremely uh, talented, and, and I think clearly was ahead of her time. Um, I suppose her record will go one day. I hope. I hope it doesn't go at all, but and, and not for some while. But I'm, I'm at a loss to explain it. Really, I mean, I, I think we are seeing um, an accelerator or a boom in uh, East African female runners, sort of targeting the marathon now, and presumably that's likely to be where the uh, the next women's world marathon record holder comes from. So that had already happened on the men's side, and maybe the the opportunities for uh, for women's marathon running from from those parts of the world where most of those champions have emerged hasn't been quite so strong to date. Yeah, yeah, that that, that would make sense, uh, and I do agree that when you look at the fields of the major marathons, you can be quite astounded sometimes by the depth of the field uh, or the men's field, but then the women's field can be look quite a bit uh, less less deep, yeah. and, and that might probably uh, play a part. On on the men's side, though, with the improvements that we've seen, do you know? In addition to the competition and uh, just the depth of the fields, do you think has there been anything else that can explain the improvements that we've seen in terms of, for example, training interventions or changes in training or things around training like recovery or nutrition or technology that uh, that you think has contributed to this plummeting of the world record? 
Um, it's really, really hard to say without being, you know, more deeply connected with um, with more of those runners. But when when we visited um, Kenya, but in particular Ethiopia as part of uh, the Break in Two project, it was quite amazing how relatively naive um, some of the athletes and coaches were when it came to to training and nutrition. So you know and that's changing there are certainly sort of western agents now which are introducing some of these concepts and and i think that's uh, that's definitely helping but you know some some of the marathon runners just they're just not used to consuming fluid or carbohydrate um during a race or knowing how to manipulate their diet prior to a race or use it to support their training there's that kind of issue which is bound to you know contribute to some extent to improving uh, marathon performance um, and also when it comes to the training, you know, I, I think we can overcomplicate training. So I don't, I don't want to say that the methods that we use in the, in the UK and, and around the world are, are necessarily better than they, than they uh, use in Africa. I think actually the techniques that they use there where they sort of listen to their bodies more and, and certainly know how to relax and, and to recover, if not nutritionally, then in terms of um, periodize, periodizing their, um, their rest is is useful but there's not a lot of not necessarily a lot of sophistication in the types of training that um many of the groups that i observed do it's just a lot of a lot of mileage in many cases it's going back to you know um what some of the runners in the uk were doing in the 50s and 60s and 70s which did still produce champions but we know now that there are other ways to go about that now if you've if you've got a hundred uh, talented Ethiopians and you give them a diet of 150 miles a week um, for a few years, there's going to be a few champions that emerge from that, but there are probably quite a few that might be wasted as well. Whose, whose training might've been, um, you know, prescribed differently who, who might've achieved more. So I think just hammering people with, um, with mileage um, and quite often some quite intense mileage isn't always the best approach. And there can be some more strategic ways to, to get the best out of um, athletes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Speaking of uh, the, I guess, nutritional, nutrition and, and supplementation, one area that you're particularly no, known for the research that you've done is, is nitrate and, and beetroots and how they can boost endurance performance. So can you give us an overview of what we know now regarding how nitrate supplementation can, can benefit endurance performance? Yeah, so, so the idea there is that... Um, um, inorganic nitrate, which is present in, yeah, as you mentioned, things like beetroot, but in particular, lots of green leafy salad vegetables, spinach, rocket, pak choy, those sorts of things. Uh, so a lot of nitrate in there. And actually, there are bacteria in our mouths that, um, that use that nitrate for their own metabolism. Um, so we have this sort of symbiotic relationship with these bacteria in our mouths. And in fact, all through our gastrointestinal tract, but the uh, the bacteria use the nitrate and they produce nitrite. So it goes from NO3 minus to NO2 minus. And then the, the nitrite gets into our bloodstream and can get into our muscles and other tissues. And you only need um, a, a very minor biochemical reaction to form nitric oxide. And it's the nitric oxide that seems to be important for the physiological effects that we observe. So, so nitric oxide is a molecule that causes dilation of blood vessels. So one of the things we find when we feed people nitrate or give them beetroot juice is that their blood pressure 
um, can go down within within an hour or so. We find their blood pressure is down by a few millimeters of mercury, and that's because the nitric oxide is working on the on the blood vessels to cause uh, dilation. And there's been some suggestion that you know when you exercise, it might be that you can increase uh, blood flow to your muscles as a consequence of that. But nitric oxide does a whole bunch of other things as well, and in particular, it works within muscle cells. It affects the mitochondria potentially to make them um, more efficient. And it may also act on the contractile elements of the muscle fiber as well so that you can produce more force. So our original studies indicated that um, following dietary nitrate supplementation, that the oxygen cost of exercising at a specific work rate was slightly lower. In other words, muscle efficiency had been improved. And then there have been some studies more recently which suggest that even sprint performance and, and activities requiring high muscle power and speed are also benefited um, by this intervention as well so you know as, as you're probably lots of uh, athletes endurance athletes but also team sport athletes and others have been using dietary nitrate supplementation or, or beetroot juice um, to augment their diet um, and many of them have, have found some benefit uh, from it so it might be a direct effect on on running economy or exercise efficiency, or it might be an effect on blood flow, or it might be an effect on muscle contractile function, whatever it is, or some combination of the of the above, um, seems to impact on their performance to to a small extent. Let's be honest. I mean, you wouldn't expect um, uh, any nutritional intervention to make more than about a one or at most two percent uh, performance effect, but that's that's the kind of margins that we um, that we see. So it's I think nitrate now has been recognised as one of relatively few nutritional ergogenic aids that can be effective. The others being things like caffeine, creatine, sodium bicarbonate, but of course all of those depend upon the event that an athlete's competing in. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you mentioned there that uh, in your original studies you you found that it was the, the running economy, but that or the, the exercise economy that improved. But then there have been these other aspects as well, like the contractile properties and and force production, uh, etc. But even in during the time that I've been following the, in particular the endurance performance aspects, which, which have typically measured exercise economy. Uh, I've seen conflicting evidence, although now things seem to be moving in the direction that this, as you say, definitely seems to work and have a small effect, small but but measurable effect. But can you explain that conflicting evidence and why it might be present, at least it was in the early days with some uh, studies showing uh, negative results? Yeah, and and you actually you find that you know I mentioned various other nutritional ergogenic aids there as well, and the same is true with with many of those as well. For every study that you can find that's uh, that's positive that does indicate that physiology or performance has been enhanced, you can probably find another one that that shows that it doesn't work. So, you know, the margins of improvement are so small, like I mentioned, often less than one percent that. It's often within the measurement error um, in our labs to, to detect these sorts of changes. And you get variability from day to day, as, as you know, within athletes. So as much as anything, it can be, does the athlete themselves feel better on this? There's obviously a belief effect and a placebo effect. I think there's more to, to it than that. There are some uh, legitimate mechanisms by which nitrate and caffeine and some of these other things might be beneficial to performance. But absolutely, the, the one thing that I think we were able to say now is that elite endurance athletes are likely to benefit less from nitrate supplementation than lesser trained individuals. So there was quite a nice study done a few years ago, which showed that the, um, it, it, the benefit that you might see to 
exercise economy and to performance was very closely correlated with VO2 max. So the less fit you were, the more benefit you would get. And the more fit you are, uh, the less benefit you would get. So, and that kind of stands to reason if you think about it. I mean, you when you're an elite endurance athlete, pretty much everything is already optimized. It doesn't mean to say that nitrate isn't improving your performance by 0.1 or 0.2 of a percent, which is probably impossible to detect statistically uh, or to measure, but actually 0.1 or 0.2% off your race time could make the difference if you're an elite athlete, you know, between coming first and coming third or fourth. So, you know, I, I think we have to, when we're interpreting um, sports nutrition evidence, you have to bear that kind of thing in mind and, and really have to, I think some individual case studies are, are important here as well, trial and error. Same with the warm-up, you know, does this work for you or doesn't it? We we find responders and non-responders even amongst elite endurance athletes. Elliot Kipchoge, for example, is a big believer in, um, in beetroot juice. So, um, and he's used it before, I think, every one of his last eight or nine major marathons. So, you know, he wouldn't be separated from it uh, if his life depended on it. So, you, you can't, you know, you can't say, therefore, that beetroot juice has contributed to his excellent performances. I suspect he would have run pretty similar times without it, but he, he believes it works. And who knows, maybe it is worth 10 seconds to him. Yeah, and I think that brings us also to uh, the typical protocols for for using beetroot juice. Because one thing that you uh, have studied, I think, is uh, comparison of just a single beetroot juice loading three hours or so before the event. Typically, that was the initial research, I think. But then later on, you have studied uh, beetroot juice loading or nitrate loading several days leading up to an event. And and I think that did you find differences there that if you are a more well trained athlete that loading period might be what makes a bigger difference than it might not be enough to just be supplementing on the day of the, the event, but you actually need that loading period to get a more measurable a difference in performance. Yeah, I think that's a fair um, synopsis. Um, I, th- I think the, the evidence now is that you're much more likely to see um, beneficial effects if you've used nitrate for a f- at least a few days and possibly a week or so compared to just acutely probably to have a belt and braces approach you might want to do both so you might want to be you know taking nitrate once or twice a day for four to seven days but then also use it on the morning of the race um, because you might want to start the race with uh, elevated nitrite levels in your blood and that would be the best way to go about that there have been some animal studies done recently though which indicate that um, that you might be able to boost your muscle store of nitrate and nitrite if you have a bit of a starvation phase first. So it's a bit like carbohydrate loading, you know, those original studies where if you have a bleed out phase, you don't eat much carbohydrate for a few days and then reintroduce carbohydrate, then you get a super compensation of muscle glycogen. These recent animal studies with um, with nitrate show something very similar. So if you deprive the, the rat or the mouse um, of nitrate for a few days or a week, and then you reintroduce the nitrate, then the skeletal muscle becomes, um, you know, acts like a sponge and really takes it up. The, the effects on exercise performance are yet to be established, but that's pretty interesting, I think, that, you know, it certainly indicates that skeletal muscle likes nitrate. And when you deprive the animal of, um, of nitrate, then when it's reintroduced, it really wants to ensure that it uh, soaks it up. And, you know, so I think that's pretty interesting evidence that, um, that muscle function might be related in some fashion to to nitrate. So whether that's going to influence human 
protocols for nitrate uh, supplementation in the future. Um, I'm not sure, but yeah, rather than just sort of take it uh, constantly, cycling on and off it is uh, is something that we need to look at uh, for the future. That is very interesting indeed. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you are involved with uh, the company called Beatit that makes uh, beetroot juice that is uh, uh, very highly quality controlled and uh, a nitrate content controlled so that you ensure that you get the the dosage that that you are intended to get in in those before those events and in your loading period is that correct well i'm not um sort of formally associated with them at all i do use their their products in my research because as you mentioned they they do kind of guarantee the amount of nitrate so if you're doing a a double blind experiment um and and you want to administer a given dose of nitrate it's very useful for that because if you were to prescribe you know 200 grams of lettuce for the athlete to eat number one that's not um not easy for them to do prior to exercise and number two you can't always guarantee that you're going to get the same amount of nitrate because the amount of nitrate varies according to the time of year and the various other factors um and they also the beat it also make a nitrate depleted placebo drink so it's it's nice to be able to sort of separate out the effect of nitrate in that way but so i'm not um I'm not I'm not linked to the company, but I do use their products because I think they're they're useful for the reasons I've described. Okay, well I, I was mistaken then, but even better because you're you're unbiased and, and can talk about it yeah. uh, with with that unbiased view. And so, from what I read, even with beetroot juice and and some certain supplements that are intended for more athletics and sports performance, unless they have that quite strict uh, quality control, then even though it says some some a certain content of nitrate on the uh, on the bottle or on whatever it is that you're consuming it might not it might vary so much if it's uh, if it's not controlled that that you might not be getting that dosage that you that you need so that's why for my most recent trace that i did i i did settle on using beat it and i did a four-day loading protocol nitrate twice per day so two shots of beetroot juice per day and then uh three hours before the before the race as you said, and, and I felt a massive difference. I have been using beetroot juice before, but more sort of like the kind of beetroot juice that you would find in in organic food stores, etc. And and I have felt pretty good in those races too, it should be said. But I, I think that actually it made a big difference to go through this entire loading protocol and, and yeah. more strictly following the protocol that more recently have been shown to be potentially more beneficial than than just just winging it. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, well, I'm glad it uh, it worked for you. Yeah. Uh, is it, one more question about uh, nitrate. Is there a difference in uh, what sort of performance benefits you can expect? What event, kind of events and and sports are, is it most beneficial for, or is it uh, pretty beneficial across the board when it comes to endurance sports? Yeah, it, to be honest, it keeps changing on that. You know, when we first showed that uh, improvement in exercise economy, then you know, the focus was definitely on endurance. And then we and others did these studies, which indicate that multiple sprint and even one-off sprint and some power type activities seem to benefit too. Um, so it could be one of those that kind of is important across across the board. I mean, different studies keep coming out, which point to different areas. I mean, there's a, I think there's one study which shows that it's more beneficial for shorter endurance than for longer endurance, but then another one which shows the opposite. So, you know, it's really hard to pinpoint right now. It's one of those things that, as I mentioned, if if you're in any way deficient in an ability to produce nitric oxide, then using that as a supplement 
is probably going to be beneficial for you. Um, don't expect necessarily there to be uh, to be big effects, but it's very, very unlikely to do any harm, and it's worth a try. And as much as anything else, even if you don't use beetroot juice as a supplement, and I think as a sort of um, lifestyle practice, then we all ought to be following you know, the advice of the governments in most of our countries and consuming more green leafy vegetables and, and fruits. And, you know, those things seem to be good for our cardiovascular and metabolic health in the long run. Um, and so we, you know, following that advice isn't a bad thing. If if nothing else, it's likely to be good for our uh, our blood pressure. And, and if you can have a lower blood pressure as you go into middle and older age, then that's likely to uh, be cardioprotective. Absolutely. And here's a quick tip that, that I'm implementing in my cooking. I, I have a spiralizer and I, I spiralize uh, beetroot and put it in salads. And the, in addition to being delicious and uh, healthy, it also makes the salads look really beautiful. So, so that's a quick tip for, yeah. for listeners. Uh, so some uh, some miscellaneous questions uh, still that I have for you. Uh, how involved are you in research on various nutritional interventions on endurance performance outside of, of nitrates? Um, well, most most of my focus has been nitrate, but I suppose over over the last twenty years, I've because um, I'm interested in sports performance pretty generally. I'll have done one or two studies looking at some other ones. I think we did something with sodium bicarbonate at one time, and I've certainly done something with caffeine and I think creatine and you know these are these are things that us exercise physiologists stroke sports nutritionists tend to uh tend to bump uh bump into occasionally and and investigate do do you have any any quick quick headline news that uh that you want to share regarding any particular supplements uh, and or diets not really. The, I, th- I think the only the one that has the the best evidence um, and and has done for quite some while is caffeine. You know, I, I think um, you, you, again, you can find some studies where it doesn't work, but the balance of evidence is certainly that caffeine is is an ergogenic aid that most endurance athletes can depend on, um, and you know, whether that's pre-exercise or possibly to spike some of the beverages during longer duration endurance exercise, you know, or both of those things, those are likely to be things that uh, your listeners are familiar with already. But there's, I, I just say there's, there's good evidence that, um, that that practice is effective. Yeah, that, that's another one that I use before races and sometimes before key uh, training sessions and that one i have a lot of experience with and and i am absolutely certain that, that caffeine has a has a positive impact on on performance yeah. it's uh it, uh, you can feel it for sure yeah uh another question is regarding a paper that you did reviewing the concepts of critical power and maximum lactate steady state uh how they are different and how they are similar and what the use cases are so can you discuss that a little bit yeah, well, the, the purpose of that paper really was was to tackle the the notion that um, that the critical power or critical speed and the maximal lactate steady state are are the same thing. Now, they both point towards the same thing. They both purport to give a, an assessment of what I'm going to call the maximal metabolic steady state. So, what is the highest power output or running speed that you can go at where you're still in a physiological steady state where you can achieve homeostasis 
And when you get above that maximal metabolic steady state, you have to rely increasingly on anaerobic mechanisms of energy production, and you'll get an accumulation of metabolites and a faster depletion of glycogen, and you'll fatigue earlier. So both critical power and maximal lactate steady state are supposed to give some index of that maximal metabolic steady state. Um, for whatever reason, it's the maximal lactate steady state that has often been considered the gold standard as far as this goes. And I'm not really sure why that is, because if you look at the definition, it's really quite arbitrary. You know, you do a, you get the athlete to do a series of 30 minute exercise trials. You measure fingertip or earlobe blood lactate concentration every five minutes. And you look at the difference between 10 minutes and 30 minutes. And if the increase in lactate is more than one millimolar, then you're, that's considered to be above maximal lactate steady state. And if it's less than one millimolar between 10 and 30 minutes, then it's deemed to be below. But I couldn't find anything in the literature to support that definition. You know, why 10 minutes? Why 30 minutes? Why a change of one millimolar? And in contrast, if you establish the critical power or critical speed, you find that if you exercise people just below it, and you can get really, really close, if you know the error margin with which you've determined that critical power, um, you exercise people at 95% of that confidence interval, just below the critical power, and you, they are able to achieve a steady state. And that's not just for lactate, but it's also for VO2 and for ventilation and for neuromuscular fatigue and for cardiac output. And I, I could go on. And, and the muscle metabolic variables as well. So muscle phosphocreatine, hydrogen ion concentration and such like. If you exercise them just above their critical power, then everything goes haywire. Um, and obviously, when you're above your critical power, we have this other parameter from the power duration relationship called W prime for cycling and uh, or um, or D prime for running or swimming. And those two things combined, the D prime or the W prime and the critical power or the critical speed can tell you how long a person will be able to sustain a particular work rate or speed above that critical um, threshold. So unfortunately, or you know, to my mind, it didn't seem sensible that when people did a comparison of maximal lactate steady state and critical power, that when there was a difference, and very often there was, you find that critical power is a bit higher than the maximal lactate steady state, that they would then say, well, they, they assume that the, the latter was the uh, gold standard, and they would use that to criticize the critical power concept. And I, in the article, I basically tried to um, reverse that thinking or defend critical power against that that criticism, because to, to my mind, you know, the, the critical power is or the hyperbolic power duration relationship is a fundamental property of human bioenergetics. And you see it in, in animals and, and you see it, uh, you know, it, it's, it's something about the mechanical performance of, of a, of a human. And um, to my mind, it certainly has a stronger theoretical and indeed practical foundation than the maximal lactate study. So, so, so the paper basically goes into those two concepts in some depth and argues that you shouldn't consider them to be interchangeable. And in fact, because of the way that the maximal lactate study state is defined, it will inevitably be lower than critical power. And in fact, will tend to underestimate the true maximal metabolic study state too. How is critical power defined or, or how is it tested? What is the gold standard? The way that you determine uh, critical power is, let's say you've got a series of, uh, I'm going to use running as an example here. If I've got a runner and in the last couple of weeks they've run their best time uh, at 800 meters, 1500 meters and 3000 meters or 2000 meters and 3000 meters, I, I can put those into a, um, 
into a equation basically so we know the distance they've run and we know the time it took them so you have basically a speed time relationship and that will be curvilinear but where it levels off to the right hand side of that graph if you sort of extrapolate back across that gives you your critical speed similarly i could bring someone into the lab and put them on a, on a cycle ergometer give them a high power output and get them to last for as long as they could. And let's say, you know, I give them 400 watts and they last for two minutes and 10 seconds. Then on another occasion, I'll bring them in um, and I'll exercise them at 350 watts and maybe they can go for three and a half minutes and then I'll bring them in at 320 watts and they might be able to go for seven or eight minutes. And the same thing is true there. So I plot power against um, duration and uh, there are, it's, it's pretty straightforward. You, you can either plot the curve or you can linearize the relationship and you can determine the critical power and, um, and, and the curvature constant, which is uh, notionally an, an anaerobic component of the energetics. Yeah, there, there are calculators online, so I'll try to, to link to some of them in, in the show notes so that uh, the listeners can go and, and have a look. What, what is the practical, is there a practical application of, of this? Like, would, would you recommend using critical power testing in training for most athletes and uh, prescribing sessions based on critical power? Or are there some other practical applications for the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think it's really valuable. So we, we started uh, this conversation this afternoon talking about the lactate threshold. So if, if you if you do an incremental type exercise test, as you, as you mentioned, there are two thresholds there. You get the first lactate threshold or first ventilatory threshold, and then you get a second lactate threshold as well. And if you're exercising below the first lactate threshold, you're in what I like to think of as the moderate domain, or that's where you, if you're a runner, you do a lot of your easy type training once you get beyond your first threshold but still below your second threshold then you're in the heavy domain um, in vo2 kinetics terminology or you're in the steady kind of domain that second lactate threshold is pretty close to the critical power or critical speed and not too far off the maximal lactate steady state as well so if you want to do threshold or tempo training that's probably the one to go at now once you get beyond that you're into the severe domain and you'll, if you exercise even at a fixed power output or speed in that domain, you're going to hit your VO2 max and you'll fatigue relatively quickly. So that's where you'll tend to do your interval training. So if you're evaluating a, a runner or any endurance athlete in the lab, then knowing where those two thresholds are, as well as the maximum, and you know the thresholds, not just in terms of speed, but also in heart rate, then you can start to, um, to prescribe training sessions, which should have specific physiological effects, which if repeated often enough over a period of time should result in specific physiological adaptations. So um, so that's why it's useful. And uh, the critical power is useful because, or, or that second lactate threshold is useful because it determines speeds um, which could be, you know, deemed to be challenging, um, but sustainable for long periods from those that simply aren't sustainable for, for more than probably 20 minutes or so. So those three domains separated by, by those thresholds give you very discrete physiological responses. So, it, you know, below the first lactate threshold, your lactate won't rise above baseline. You'll feel really, really comfortable. If you're in, in that zone between those two thresholds, then your lactate will be elevated, but it will stabilize after 5, 10, 15 minutes, and you'll be able to go for, for a while, and you'll get a good quality aerobic training stimulus. But above that, uh, that second threshold, which I think is best defined by critical power, then um, 
then homeostasis is 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 lost and uh you know it isn't necessarily a bad thing it's not going to be sustainable for the longer term so you might want to avoid it if you're running a marathon going above it but in terms of designing specific training sessions and training programs then that can be um be useful to to have having that second component of that hyperbolic power time relationship that w prime is also quite useful as well because when that depletes to zero that's when you'll become exhausted so you can prescribe individualized interval training sessions which uh, you know, you can um, predict in advance how much of that W prime is going to be utilized during each repetition and how quickly or how much recover, how much that will have recovered in the intervening recovery interval between repetitions. So I think, uh, so, so for example, to give an example of that with somebody with a higher W prime or D prime, they would uh, typically be able to do longer duration intervals above critical power and, and repeat those. Whereas somebody with a, with a very low W prime, they might be better off doing, doing shorter intervals, maybe trying to still get the same total duration of work, but, but splicing it up into, into shorter segments. Would, would that be uh, an example? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's one of many, uh, you know, possible examples there. Um, so, yeah, so I think ha- having some measure of that second threshold, which is at a higher intensity than most people um, would imagine, is is useful. Now, I'm not saying that maximal lactate steady state isn't potentially useful as well as some kind of an anchor point. Um, but but I think, uh, yeah, my preference is for critical power for all the reasons I describe in the paper you referred to. What is the time range that you think that there would be a typical time to exhaustion at critical power for for athletes? Yeah, well, that's a bit of a a, a funny question because the the critical power itself you can define to a single watt, right? So if I determine that your critical power is two hundred and eighty watts, and I exercise you at two hundred and eighty watts, the the problem is that on the day that I test you, your critical power might be a few watts higher than that or a few watts lower than that. So the the beauty or the advantage of the critical power is it separates domains within which the physiological behavior is, is very different. And so it's kind of a, I don't think it's an appropriate question to ask how long you can go at it. Um, but what, because what it does is separate response. Now you could go for a long period below it and you wouldn't go for very long above it, but exactly how long you would go at critical power is a bit of a moot point. Let's say you test me at 280 and, and I do a TT test at 270 watts. Would that be a large enough margin to, to give a time range for, for how yeah. I could go? Yeah. Yeah. You'd be, I'd be confident that and in that situation, you'd be low, you'd be below your critical power and I'd expect you to be able to do, you know probably 40 minutes plus there yeah okay uh yeah excellent uh, i think that was it about critical power i have one more question but this is actually a listener question that has come in from a couple of listeners i saw that your lab uses uh near infrared spectroscopy spectroscopy technology in some of your research and there are now consumer devices available that uses this NIRS technology to measure your oxygen saturation uh, and the hemoglobin and the likes, and they're becoming more widely available. So uh, do you have any thoughts about these consumer devices? Are they accurate and precise enough to be useful for athletes? I think they're definitely improving. Um, I know of some unpublished data that's actually pretty, pretty impressive that, uh, you know, the it seems to track critical power quite well. It seems to behave or, or the oxygen saturation measures behave in the way that you might expect following various interventions. 
that stuff's um, yet to be peer reviewed or anything. But that looks looks promising. I wasn't, you know, a believer that perhaps this stuff could be um, could be miniaturized and customized to be of use in the field. But I'm becoming more confident that that uh, eventually it might be. So yeah, watch this space on that. Okay, but but do you, do you think that at the moment it's still not quite there yet? But it it might be in the not too distant future. Yeah, I think that would be my take. Okay, okay, fair enough. Uh, do you have any other interesting projects or topics that uh, that you're involved with and excited about that you want to mention or discuss? Um, not well, the, the one paper that we're uh, we're just revising at the moment is you know we've been talking a bit about critical power there, and one of the things we've been interested in is not just um, how you can predict performance from critical power assessed in advance of the event itself. But also, how does critical power change over time while you do an endurance performance? Because, you know, clearly, as you fatigue, these variables that we think are of importance, things like VO2 max, things like economy or efficiency, thresholds and, and such like, are almost certainly, well, you know, not going to be the same at the finish line of the marathon as they were at the beginning. But nobody's really tracked the extent to which these things deteriorate. So I've been becoming quite interested in, you know, that that fourth aspect of it really you know because you can measure um vo2 max lactate threshold running economy in um in a couple of runners let's say and you might predict that they'd be capable of the same performance time and yet they're not and and i suspect that it's because the deterioration of those variables differs quite considerably from one athlete to the next so we've been doing some studies which track how how these things change over time and in specifically how critical power changes and how w prime changes and whether there's anything we can do to uh, to modify um, the extent to which those things deteriorate. So, so we've got a paper coming out on on that soon. It's uh, the fourth in a series of studies where the first author is Ida Clark, who was a PhD student of mine. So, so those um, those studies might be of interest to your listeners. Mm, yeah, maybe maybe you need to connect us, and, and we can have a, an interview about uh, about that on a, on a future podcast. Yeah, sure. Okay, so let's move into the final part, uh, the rapid-fire questions. Answer these in uh, in one sentence or two, 15 seconds or so, uh, starting with what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports? Uh, you mentioned Alex Hutchinson's Endure. I think that's a pretty good read. I've just become aware of a um, of a book that's come out called The Passion Paradox, which uh, sounds like it might be of interest to me. So I'm looking forward to getting hold of that in the next few days. Yeah, that's by Steve Magnus and uh, yeah. Brad Solberg. Uh, Brad, yeah. Brad was a, a past guest on on the show talking about their first book, Peak Performance, which I've read. I haven't read The Passion Paradox, but Peak Performance was really, really good. Okay. What's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Sorry, what was the habit? Yeah. Um, oh, I think probably, you know, resilience. Um, just kind of, actually, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that I used to be a, a decent runner. I think if you apply the lessons that you learn as a runner, that that discipline that you need and the motivation that, that you, you have there to want to do the best you can, if you apply that to your science, then I think you can go a reasonably long way with that. And I've kind of transitioned from being an athlete and not one as, that was going to be as good as I'd wanted to be into, into trying to do the best I can in my scientific career. And finally, who's somebody in endurance sports or in uh, science, academia, that, uh, that you look up to? Um, I'm going to go with the, the marathon runners that we've mentioned already today. And I've learned a lot and, you know, 
have been blessed to have crossed paths with both Paula Radcliffe and Elliot Kipchoge. I don't think there are many people who can say they've been associated with um, two champions like that. One would have been a, a dream come true, but to have had the opportunity to interact with them, to learn from them, and hopefully to have some minor input to their success has been um, been greatly, uh, you know, what's the word, um, satisfying. Yeah, and uh, congratulations to you for having been involved with them and, and their success. It's uh, it's a really fantastic achievement uh, for you and uh, the support teams that they've, they've had as well, of course. So thank you so yeah. much, uh, Andy. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you about various topics in endurance sports. And uh, yeah, I've been following you for and your work for a long time, and uh, it's uh, a pleasure to uh, speak to you. That's a pleasure. I thought you asked some, some really good questions, and I enjoyed answering them. It's a nice, nice hour we just spent. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As usual, you can find the show notes on thattriathlonshow.com or scientifictriathlon.com forward slash TTS187. It's actually quite interesting that it took 187 episodes to discuss nitrate when it is, along with caffeine, as we discussed, the the ergogenic aid that actually does have a lot of solid evidence going for it. Speaking of which, I don't think I've made an episode on caffeine either. So about time for that too, I believe. Uh, Either way, I just want to quickly touch upon the nitrate loading protocol that I used for Challenge Lisbon recently that we talked about a bit in the interview as well. Uh, but uh, so of course we talked about the, the protocols and what's been done in the literature this is just i guess a, a practical example of what i did and what you can do and and i should start by saying that i had a really good race i swam faster than i had ever done i biked faster than i had ever done i ran faster than i had ever done and i was the third age grouper overall in the race so something went right and i think that nitrate played a small part in that so first of all There is a great, great article by Alex Hutchinson on his Sweat Science blog, brilliant blog that you absolutely should follow, by the way, that links to some new research from from this year or late 2018, I'm not quite sure. But either way, what they showed in that research was that after four days of nitrate loading, blood nitrate and nitrite started to max out. So so the takeaway was that perhaps you don't need to to load for much more than four days, even though that study used a seven-day loading protocol, but they measured the blood concentration of nitrate and nitrite uh, every single day. So so that's the approach that I took, and uh, there are probably some individual variations, but I went for that. I'm not saying that four days is the best, but, but that's what I did. So two shots per day for four days before the race uh, of uh, Beat It. So that is the product that we talked about. It's beat-it.com. And each shot contains 400 milligrams of nitrate. So that is sort of the, it's the amount that has been used more recently in, in research typically as, as one dose of, of nitrate. So one of those in the morning, one in the afternoon or evening. And finally, I took one shot the morning of, roughly three hours before the race. But actually, I just noticed as I reread the article by Alex Hutchinson, that in the study, they actually took two shots on race day or time trial day as well. So I maybe missed out a little bit there because I only took one, I'm sure. And, and I did not notice that that they took two shots on the morning. Of. I just assumed that it was one in the morning and you don't take one in the afternoon because you've already raced. So, so that was a, a bit of a mistake from, from me and maybe I'll take two next time I race. Anyway, uh, from what I read uh, about nitrate loading and... F- from what we discussed as well with Professor Jones, 
the one thing that is super important with uh, nitrate is that that you actually get the right amount of nitrate and that's not easy if you're going with beets or beetroot juice that you can find in your your local grocery store or anything really because it's there, there's so much variance in how much nitrate is is uh, actually present in whatever beetroot based product that, that you're consuming and beet it is one of the few that actually quality controls their supplement to the degree that they can guarantee that 400 milligrams of nitrate in each shot and that is why it was a no-brainer for me to to use that supplement and uh, professor jones confirmed that that's what they use in their research for the same uh, reasons so i really like the product i have no affiliation with them whatsoever it's easy to use and those it didn't taste too terrible and it was was cheap quite cheap not not very expensive at least i think it was around two euros per shot and i'll take that seven days a week if, if it can give me a percentage or two of additional performance gains so that's my unsolicited plug for beat it the product which i uh, liked a lot so that's it for this episode next week of course we have a first day q a coming up and that's actually a very good q a where i talk with uh, my coaching partner james teagle uh, next monday we have uh, an interview with paul newsom uh, which uh, is brilliant as usual uh, so uh, stay tuned for that and make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss anything we have plenty of other great content coming out soon as well so do stay subscribed and you won't miss out of course if you've been listening for a long time and enjoy the podcast you know that the currency of podcasts is ratings and reviews so please take a minute to leave a rating and review for the podcast if you haven't done so already and if you think that it gives you value Thank you finally to our sponsors that keep the show going. First, we have Roka on roka.com. Get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. And big thanks to Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Remember to send me an email if you have hydration questions that we will answer on an upcoming Q&A with founder Andy Blow. And in the meantime, you can get your first box or tube of Precision Edition Electrolytes for free with the promo code that triathlon show, all one word, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.